it doesn't take a lot of new entrants to change a lot of things really quickly. Like we're already noticing in the spaces that we're in, just because we're in the competition in the first place, it's forcing even the legacy competitors to change their game and to up their game. If one or two companies break the dam, a lot of things start to change quickly. We're already seeing a lot of that happen, which is super exciting. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. What's up, man? How are you? I'm good. You didn't want to come to beautiful Washington, D.C. in the fall for this? Honestly, it would have been a good... The thing is, as you know, D.C. is a pretty far flight from the Bay. It's not close. I have done the back and forth a lot in my life. How often do you come back? So we're in Costa Mesa. So we're in SoCal. And I mean, at least once a month, I'm out there. It used to be a lot more. I I just had a kid. And so... uh, I've been trying to limit travel a little bit more, but um, yeah, I'm out there a lot. And then like all around the country for all of our client meetings and stuff like that. I imagine most of your client meetings are DC based, aren't they? So there's a lot. Customers are headquartered here. The Pentagon's here. Yeah. Obviously the Congress is here. White House is here, but customers are everywhere. There's US bases, name the state, right? And so- Tampa with SOCOM, Huntsville with the Army, Colorado with Space Force. I mean, you name it. How cleared are you? Are you even allowed to say if you were very cleared, could you say? Sure. Yeah. No, we're, I mean, we're all very cleared. We probably have hundreds, if not a thousand cleared employees at this point. So you're literally roaming, you got the badge and you're roaming the halls of our great nation here or what? You kind of need the access to understand their problems, right? And so... We tend to hire a lot from those communities directly. And then those that we don't, we put them through the the long process to get screened and cleared and off we go. So yeah, it's just kind of all part of it. That makes sense. Well, dude, I appreciate you doing this. I'm super excited. You've been in defense tech your entire life. Okay. Today it's hot. All the VCs now want to be in. All the LPs are excited to invest in it. It hasn't always been that way. And I don't know if it's because of the war and just the general awareness of the public has become more geared towards shoring up our defenses. But is there a little part of you that's like, damn it, I've been getting flack for a long time doing this thing. And now it's in vogue. At this point in my career, no, maybe like younger when I was starting out, I would have had a a different opinion. But I think The reason I do it, the reason we do it is exactly what we're seeing now is, you know, we've been saying for years, there's been a small niche in the tech community, you know, really kind of screaming from the rooftops that this was vitally important to the nation, the world, and we need to get the best of the U.S. and sort of allied nations tech talent engaged in the national security community. And certainly for years, it's felt like, you know, shouting into the wind. And so, no, I... I think it's validating and it's exciting to see the winds change. I I don't have any kind of like negative reaction to it. I also think there's a perceived benefit for the nation and well and for Andrew, right? Where rising tide does kind of lift all boats in this community where if you're one entity shouting into the wind and saying things, usually it falls flat. But if you can create a large groundswell of of different companies and different founders, entrepreneurs, all saying the same thing, those groundswells, I mean, it really does create an effect that is greater than the sum of the parts. And so just to see it kind of all play out is is awesome. And I think the bow wave is kind of just started. And now we see where we get. Can you, just so that we can set the table, like maybe 30 seconds, like what does Anderl do? Anderl is, we're pretty wide in the defense technology community at this point. We're a product focused company. We focus on building mainly robotic systems and unmanned systems and enabling those systems with really two core types of software, the 
ability to do advanced command and control would be sort of the term of art. And I know that sort of the audience for this recording is probably maybe mostly non-defense. So I'll try and like define a lot of the, the niche terms as I go here. Please, yeah. So command and control, right? It is what it is, right? So how do I very quickly and efficiently and accurately tell my fleets of hardware, whether they're manned or unmanned, what I want to do as a commander and make sure that those things are executed how you would expect them to be executed. That's sort of our first software bucket. And the second one is advanced mission autonomy. So we do less of single vehicle autonomy, which a lot of, you know, like a, a big part of the tech community is focused on how do I move vehicles around cities and things like that. We're sort of drafting off of a lot of that good work. Our focus in mission autonomy is more once I have fleets of robots, particularly when they are heterogeneous in nature, like different types of things doing different things. How do I do autonomy across the fleet? And how do I handle the interaction of all those different robots within the environment? That problem is particularly unique to the Department of Defense right now, where you need different types of undersea, surface of the water, land, air, space, assets, all working in concert with one another in order to achieve whatever objective you're trying to do. And the autonomy between those types of systems, it's a pretty unexplored space right now that we focus on. Is it fair to say that the primes, right? The Lockheeds of the worlds, the Boeings, this is squarely who you're working to compete against. Is that right? Absolutely. You know, when we started the company in 2017, we basically went around and said, we're going to be the next great defense prime. And, you know, a lot of people sort of gave us a weird look and we're like, first, what is that? And second, that's impossible, right? Which is the two great things that you want to hear from the investor in tech community that we don't know what it is and it's impossible to do. But there was a small set of tech investors that were super forward leaning in the space that gave us a chance. And, you know, I think what's been interesting is year over year, we go into customer environments or, you know, we go back to the investor community if we're doing around and we, we always say the same thing. We're going to be the next great U.S. defense prime. And every year that sentence becomes more and more believable. And I would say sort of through some recent things that we've done, if you saw in the news, we're now building a group five autonomous aircraft called Fury. I think that sentence now is ringing more and more true. Like 2023 has been a big year for us to be considered in the same class as a Lockheed and a Northrop and a, a General Dynamics. You know, I'm not going to say we're there yet. I think that would be kind of ridiculous, but we're well on our way and well on that path. Your valuation is starting to creep up there. As of December of last year, December of 2022, you raised it a $7 billion valuation. Founders funded the Series A, General Catalyst, Andreessen, et cetera. Why do you think the general reaction is or was that's impossible? So even 2017, it wasn't that long ago, right? But it was a different world. And so like, we kind of need to remind everybody that there was not a war in Europe going on. And that's what we should call it, right? This is a land war in Europe is what the Russia-Ukraine war is. And that, that's a pretty exceptional thing that didn't exist in 2017. China's aggression towards Taiwan was still muted and they weren't sort of now overtly, you know, implying invasion is what we should all be thinking about. And so the entire world was different. So that was sort of like one piece. The second piece is in the defense world in particular, there are enormous barriers to entry to even starting. You mentioned, you know, when we were doing a quick little intro, clearances, access to information, access to contracting, surviving the budget cycle, understanding congressional relations, and then building technology that has to sort of live up to an extreme set of circumstances that rightfully the Defense Department puts you through in order to even get to fielding. You know, usually it basically implies that there's too many barriers and sort of moats around the industry. And, and so competitors, thou shalt not try. And then the primes are just strategically advantaged from their, I mean, some of them have over a hundred years of history at this point. And when you say primes, you mean Northrop, Lockheed, et cetera, yes? 
There's no real definition to it. I think when you say that, most people associate with the top five U.S. defense contractors by revenue. So Lockheed, Northrop, General Dynamics, okay, yep. Raytheon, and Boeing, of course. You know, L3, Harris, you know, they've done a bunch of acquisitions recently. Some are saying maybe there's a sixth, you know, whatever. It doesn't actually matter. But that's generally what we're talking about here is these very, very large companies with a huge amount of history that have a pretty good grip on you know, the vast majority of defense spending in the US and sort of cracking that vice grip is quite hard. Why? The nature of defense sort of acquisitions implies that you need to set up a company that's very different than every other commercial sector that you'd imagine. I mean, I've looked and even to the point where like your profit and loss statements are very different as compared to how the government does business. Like I'll give you an example. If you look at the P&L of a defense prime, generally speaking, they get paid for a lot of the things that, you know, sort of we in the tech community would generally take on our own books as their own internal research and development, funding the next iteration of the product. The defense primes are structured in such a way where that doesn't exist. They get paid for everything through and through. They don't really have to take a lot of risk on their own books, sort of knowing at the end of the day, they're going to make a certain amount of margin that's agreed to ahead of time. Breaking that construct, it's very difficult for outsiders to do. The government's not used to contracting in the ways that we in the tech community are used to. And if you don't understand that from the start, I like to use the term organ rejection. Like sometimes the host just rejects the new organ. And so you need to structure your entire company, understanding that from the very beginning and understand how to work within the rules that the government spells out to be successful. That knowledge isn't resident in a lot of people. It's not resident in a lot of companies. It's generally centralized in a few very large defense companies. And if you don't push hard against those things, you don't end up going anywhere pretty fast. This reminds me a little bit. This is a weird analogy, so bear with me. But I had Bob Muglia on, who was the ex-Snowflake CEO. And previous to that, basically number two at Microsoft, he was telling me a story about the Microsoft DOJ trials and the days leading up to the decision, he was with Bill Gates and Bill was convinced that they were going to win. And I asked Bob, why was he wrong? Like what misled him? And what Bob said was that Bill didn't understand that this was a political battle, not a technology one. This was a time where the political wins were not in Microsoft's favor, and that's ultimately why they lost. And I wonder for you, how much of that resonates in the world that you live in, whether that's your interaction with government, whether that's general sentiment of the public and how they support or don't. I'll pause there. I have a bunch of follow-up questions, but does that make sense? Sure. I get the reaction. My reaction to that is it's more like uh, political might be the wrong word in, in my world. It's probably more like the decision framework that the government uses to pick winners has a lot more pieces to it than sort of at the face of it is the technology as presented to me the best thing. Like that's a big piece of it. And so we shouldn't like impugn the integrity of committees that do these types of choices. Like they actually they have very, very difficult jobs, but there's a lot more that goes into it than just, is it at the surface, the best piece of technology? You know, everything from, can the company scale to meet the needs where a lot of companies that engage underappreciate just how big some of these things can get and how complex can the company build the thing and manufacture it and go from hundreds of things to thousands of things? Can they live up to the sometimes extreme set of security circumstances that surround these things? And do they have the infrastructure to support it? You know, sort of and, 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 and. It's not just the technology itself, but it's everything that that thing has to be wrapped in in order to make it actually work for a warfighter. And so it's a good example. But to me, yeah, that's the lesson, right, is... When you're working with the Defense Department, you have to create a company that can handle the and, 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 and that is required to be the winner. And I think at Andrew, we've done a pretty good job at that so far is understanding these things deeply 
so that when we do present to the government, there's a trust factor there and there's a believability that we can actually succeed if awarded. It just strikes me that your mode is so big. The bridge that you have to go over feels so long to me because the competition is basically a part of the connective tissue of our government. To your point, this has been a hundred years of relationship building and people in government tend to stick around in a lot of cases. By the way, when they don't stick around, they're generally going to these companies. That's generally where they go. So much of it is, to your point, beyond technology. It is understanding the system and the way that the organism works. And I just, you feel like we got your work cut out for you. Sure. Man, if it was easy, then there'd be a lot more companies trying to do it, right? <laughs> is anybody else trying to do it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of new players in the space, all at sort of different levels of engagement and success. We had sort of a, a head start, right? We were one of sort of the first new versions of this, 2017. You know, I think Palantir and SpaceX are the examples that have come before and are successful. It's successful companies enduring in a lot of different ways. And, you know, certainly the new wave of companies draft off of a lot of work that Palantir and SpaceX did in the prior two decades. We're talking about two companies. <laughs> two. Totally. I, I guess my opinion, though, is like it doesn't take a lot of new entrants to change a lot of things really quickly. Like we're already noticing in the spaces that we're in, just because we're in the competition in the first place, it's forcing even the legacy competitors to change their game and to up their game. And I think that's super important. And so maybe from the outside, yeah, there's like a lot of road to go and it looks impossible. But like also the reality is if one or two companies break the dam, a lot of things start to change quickly. We're already seeing a lot of that happen, which is super exciting. You were at Palantir before this in 2009. How big was the company when you were there? Uh, we were just under 50 people. Tiny. And before that, you were at Georgetown. I wonder, before any of this, did you have dreams of being in the defense industry growing up? Like, were your parents in this industry? It just uh, strikes me that you went to Georgetown in D.C., got your bachelor's in international affairs and comp sci, went straight to Palantir and basically haven't looked back. It almost feels deterministic in some sense. <laughs> I guess it all kind of adds up. Uh, I, no, I mean, the quick background there is I grew up in upstate New York, not too far north of New York City in the Hudson Valley. I was a senior in high school. So 9-11 was the fall of my senior year of high school. And so we were all making our college decisions during that season. I think at the time I knew that the events of 9-11 affected me. I think only in hindsight do I realize that it actually affected me maybe more than I, I knew at the time. But yeah, certainly it affected my entire trajectory. I ended up at Georgetown. Funny enough, as a freshman, I, I met one of the co-founders of Andrel, Trey Stevens, who's also a at Founders Fund. I don't know if you know him. Great guy. And everything else just became the drive to do what I thought were the right things, which is based on what I'm good at, how can I move the needle even just a little bit in the defense space and the national security space? And because I had a proclivity towards technology, it kind of led me down one path. And so along the way, I do think I and the companies that I've been a part of have absolutely shifted the needle. Do I think we've shifted them enough? Definitely not. And that's sort of why I'm still in the game. And why I'm still motivated to succeed. But you say like, hey, I feel like my skills lend itself well to, you started as an engineer. Today you're the CRO, right? But you started at Palantir as an engineer. Is that wrong? It's not wrong, but I would say I was a very bad one and I very quickly realized what I was good at. <laughs> <laughs> and what I ended up being good at was more of like the external customer-facing pieces of the job, understanding customer need, understanding how they think about technology and capability, understanding how they program for things. All of that ended up being sort of where I spiked. 
I mean, I would say now I'm a very, very lapsed engineer. I can probably play one okay on TV, but certainly can't walk the walk anymore. That makes sense. Why don't you keep the ride going at Palantir? I actually don't think a lot of people outside the Valley have heard of Palantir, but I believe that will be one of the signature companies of our lifetime. And that's from the outside looking in. Now, am I on the outside? I don't know, but I'm not in the company. You were in the company. You knew what was happening there. You left as the head of business operations in 2017. And the ride was not done yet. Walk me through that. Yeah, totally. I ended up talking to a lot of people making career transitions in tech. And so, you know, I gave kind of the same advice to myself, I guess, at that point in time. So first off, yeah, people in Washington definitely know the name Palantir, maybe not the broader community. And it's a great company. And I agree, it still has an incredible trajectory. In 2017, really, it came down to what was the next step in my own career? It really had nothing to do with anything other than that. And sort of where I was at there, I had done engineering, I had done business development, I had worked in both the government and commercial practices, I had run internal teams very randomly, but very formatively, I was the head of recruiting for a year. I had kind of done the crazy crash course in all that a company can offer. It was really every facet. And so I was ready to try my hand at the executive level and knew that, I mean, the Palantir executive team is amazing, right? They're not going anywhere. And so the conversation with, you know, some of my mentors and my, and my bosses there was actually really easy. And one of the things I credit them with is their sort of positive position on Palantir alumni founding companies. You know, if you look at the Palantir alumni, we have created a crazy number of successful companies. There's sort of something in the water, so to speak, there that has caused this. And so the way that I exited was super positive on that front, still very friendly to all folks over there today. And so, yeah, at some point you reach a point in your career where you have to kind of look outside to, to figure out what's next. And that's what it was for me. What was a lower moment personally or professionally for you during that ride? Again, folks think from the outside looking in like, wow, you're at Palantir, sub 50 employees. You rode that way for seven years. Like that must have been easy. It's not. I just wonder if there's anything that kind of twists your gut inside that you think back to. Oh, man, so many things. I mean, even today at the current companies I've been at, you don't scale a company that fast. Palantir and Andrel, both good examples. 100% year over year, or even more in some cases, and think that everything is going to go right. That's a pretty naive thing to think. I also think that particularly in my experience at Palantir, it was formative because, I mean, we were, we were all learning together for the first time. The interesting part about Andrew is it's a lot of second and third acts for us. And so we can take a bit of perspective to the work that maybe we didn't have the first or second time around, mm -hmm. which... You know, I think there's like the old kind of adage that second, third time founders are always a, a bit more successful, at least statistically, that would be true. And I'm kind of living that right now in a way, which is interesting. But yeah, you screw up all kinds of things from personal interactions to how you organize your teams to bad interaction with your customers to everything. And I think that at this point in my career, you know, when I talk to folks on my team that are having a a bad day or week or a month, which happens. The most important thing is, can you actually reflect and learn and tease out the kernels of truth that lie within that mistake and figure out how to improve and press forward? I think that if you look at successful leaders, executives at startups, you can almost 100% of the time tie it to that type of characteristic. I kind of always say like, there's always an 80-20, like 80% of it is probably nonsense, but there's probably like 20% of it that you can learn from. And the ability to tease that out, you know, to me sort of separates the strong leadership teams from the not. Yeah. Particularly the dwelling on the 80% the that you can't change. I see that as a pretty consistent thing because it's hard to do, right? And a lot of these things end up being pretty personal and... Yeah, if you can't really say like, okay, yeah, 80% of that is shitty, but I couldn't have done anything about it. But actually 20% was my fault. And here's what I would do better. 
you have to be able to do that to be successful. Self-awareness, it feels like the key prerequisite to improvement. Absolutely. At a startup, you know, I tell this to our portfolio all the time, like you don't f***ing have a boss that's going to tell you what's going on because your boss barely knows what's going on. And by the way, your boss is probably going to get fired. And if he, he or she doesn't get fired, they're going to get a new job. They're going to get a bigger job. Then they're not going to be your boss anymore. And they're going to be the boss of like 50 people. And so if you can't look at yourself in the mirror and have a really clear view of what you are doing well and not well, you can't get better because there is not a bunch of people holding your hand telling you. And if that's something that you need, which is, by the way, completely okay, you should go to a big company where there is a lot of structure, where there is some level of clarity around what winning and losing looks like, because otherwise the 100% year over year growth will eat you alive if you cannot keep up. And the only way to keep up is to look at yourself clearly in the mirror. It's a great point. There's a couple of traits that if you do, you will succeed at startups. I think the first one is consensus building. So this sort of realization that your boss isn't the only one with an answer. Actually, there's a community of extremely exceptional and smart people around you, you know, up, down, and to the side. And consistently being able to drive consensus is important. The second piece, to your point, is conviction. So can you take all of that information on board? And then instead of doing the average of everything and what everybody says, can you tease out the important parts of the various different positions that folks hold? And can you create a plan that you have actual conviction and belief in that you can then go execute on? And the, and the last piece is just pure performance. So once I've done the first two, right, once I've built consensus and once I've developed my own conviction, do I perform? And is my evaluation of my own performance accurate and held by my peers and my company, which is, again, something that people you know might have misinterpretations of? And again, if you look at people who are successful in these hypergrowth companies, and there's a lot of stuff that goes on around you, if you consistently do these things, you will be successful. You will rise up. The company will ask you to do more interesting, crazy, risky things, and you're going to enjoy the ride. I think if you sort of don't do these things, you end up in a lot of, a lot of hot water because you're right. There's not a lot of structure around you to sort of catch you if you fall. Do you consider yourself an anxious person? Not at all. Do you not think that there needs to be some like anxious overachiever in you that catalyzes this like almost obsessive look at yourself and those around you to push forward? Because you don't strike me as a very anxious, like you do seem pretty even Steven. <laughs> I think in the business that I'm in, you have to kind of have a deep appreciation of the things you can actually control. And you have to push basically everything that you can't control out of the way. I deal with every day, there's a situation where we get into these kind of do loops and discussions where we're talking and speculating about things that we just don't know the answer to. And you have to, in a very fast way, change the course of the conversation, right? Which is like, okay. Let's like put all this stuff to the side for now. What can we control and what can we do now to affect the outcomes that we want? And what you generally find if you think that way is the actions you can take, they tend to be much more limited than maybe you would think going in in the first place to these conversations. And you can take the energy in the room and you can focus it, right? You can get a lot of misplaced energy at startups that actually ends up detracting from your ability to achieve what you need to achieve. If you can quickly sort of steer the team to, okay, what have we learned? What do we want to do? And what are the next steps? I tend to find that you get more acceleration. Is that consistent in your personal life too? I would say probably, you know, you could probably ask my friends and family and wife about that, but yeah, I, I generally tend to take a pretty similar approach. What can I control and what can I do about it? It's important to me. And in defense, when you're dealing with pretty heavy issues, actually deep amounts of empathy are super important here to understand what ultimately your customer, who is in many cases risking their life, 
with your technology, you have to have deep empathy for that position, but you don't have to let it crush you, which it can be crushing in this world because there's so many things that go on. I mean, to the earlier point in the conversation, right? Like it's not just about the thing right in front of you. It's about the entire apparatus that is engaged in these issues. And if you're not focused on the things that you can control, you can get distracted pretty easily. How big was Andro when you joined? Oh, maybe less than 30 people. Was your title CRO when you came in? My title was sort of nothing. You know, we were so small. We didn't kind of have, we kind of had a mismatch of things. It didn't really matter, I think, at that point, right? We had a job to do and we were all doing the job. Yeah. And, you know, I was clearly brought in for go-to-market leadership, right? Which is sort of what I do. But at the time, it was really like everyone is doing everything to be successful, you know, to the point where I distinctly remember one of the first products we built is a, an automated tower system that can identify things you care about at great distances. And we had one on a military base. And, you know, those first systems, they clearly weren't perfect, right? Like part of the whole technical process is to deploy fast and iterate your way to success. We very much embody that. By the way, that is a cultural ethos at our company that is different in the defense community. And it's something that we've had to work with our customers so that they understood the process, that things might not be perfect from the get-go. But anyways, in the very early days, I remember you know, I was the person geographically closest to the thing that wasn't working. So I went with a toolkit to a military base and I call, it was an electrical engineer at the time. And I said, okay, I'm at the thing. And, you know, the first thing he said was, well, is the power off? And I said, what do you mean it's the power off? Like, how do I know if the power's off? And he just started cracking up. And I was like, listen, man, clearly I'm not the right person to do this job, but I am here. I'm going to do it. So let's make sure the power is off so I don't kill myself doing this. And that's kind of what it was. Like the first year, right, was just all hands on deck. We all did everything, you know, CEO on down. You know, and then we sort of differentiated as we grew and, and as need arise. Yeah. Does it feel in hindsight a little early to bring someone like you on? Now, I don't think you're a traditional go-to-market leader in the same way. Like uh I do think you're more business operations oriented. And I think in probably government world, you want to start engagements way earlier than you would potentially be ready. So Maybe I just answered my own question. I just wonder. In government work, if you're going at light speed time, you're getting to kind of a scaled contract. In three years, you know, normally it's more like five to seven. I think the fact that we've been able to do some scaled contracts within three years is sort of proof point that things can be done faster. But yeah, I was brought on in 2018. And and some of the things we started back then really just came to fruition in 2021, 22, 23. I mean, we knew from the start of the company that that we had to start the clock on a lot of these engagements really early. And so in defense in particular, definitely wasn't too early to start that muscle movement. It only then creates the flywheel that you can extract the fruit from many, many years down the road in a lot of cases. That system, the autonomous surveillance towers that I think that you were just referencing, that you were pressing the on and off switch on, in 2020, Anduril became the youngest company to win a program of record with the United States government since the end of the Korean War with the surveillance towers. Are those towers, is one of the big use cases today putting those down in the on the border? It's twofold. So they're mainly used for border security, both domestically and internationally, and for fixed point security. So think like large military installations, both domestically and internationally, both US bases, but also allied customers as well. And so it's been a pretty successful first product. You know, as far as the metrics you would look at from a chief revenue officer perspective, it's sort of everything you want to see in terms of market adoption. It also allowed us to branch very quickly into things like air defense. And then the software from those systems has been fundamental to a lot of our command and control and autonomy work. And so you'd like to say you thought of all of this stuff when you were doing it, but I think we thought of some of it. We certainly knew that there would be plus plus versions of all this stuff. Could we have envisioned back then exactly where we would be today? Absolutely not. 
you know, certainly the road has been fun and interesting. Can you explain maybe using the towers on the border as the example? Because again, today it's very vogue to talk about protecting our borders. What was the incumbent solution? I'm sure that solution still exists today. It doesn't seem like we got Mexico to pay for the wall. So I guess I wonder, is this in lieu of that? What are we doing and how is this different and how is it better and et cetera? So the first piece is super important, which is in all of the macro dialogue around the U.S. southern border, border security has never actually been particularly controversial. Democrats and Republicans, since we started the company, have been supportive of technology solutions along the border. It's sort of like, no matter what you do, you still need it. And so we chose the kind of the one non-controversial part of the industry to start in. Yeah, nobody wants people sneaking in to the country. Correct. The traditional way you would do this is you would have a person looking at a screen, and that screen would be connected to a set of cameras and, and other, other sensors, and that person would have to you know, essentially fuse all that data in their brain. And then sometimes at three in the morning, tired after a long shift, try and like pick out things and then go and direct whatever response was needed, be it medical or law enforcement. These systems take the person out of the sensor fusion job is like kind of the best way to think about it. So we've trained our AI, which sits at the edge on that tower, on that device to identify all of the things you would care about as a law enforcement officer in the border security context or as a, a military force protection officer in the military context. And it will simply alert you to what's going on with enough information for you to make a very fast decision on how to respond to the situation. And so it's been very successful, both the border and the military installation work, because it just ends up being kind of obvious. Computers are actually very, very good at, quote unquote, staring at screens all day long. And people are not particularly good at staring at screens all day long. And that this is just kind of a known thing that as an early on company, when you're applying like some pretty complex new types of AI techniques to a problem, you want to choose a problem that it's just like everybody looks at and realizes this is an obvious application. That's kind of where you want to start. Once you have done that, you then went and bought a company called Dive Technologies. And now that seems to be the foundation with which you just won, what, a $100 million contract with the Australian government to go build them badass submarines? I mean, I don't think you guys would say it that way. And I don't know if the press release would say it that way, but basically that way. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, there was a bunch of yada, yada, yada there. So let's, let's go into it. So yeah. So first off, part of the corporate strategy is when we find amazing hardware robotics companies that it's just like a layup if we were to apply our command and control and autonomy software to, we pursue those companies hard and we get super excited about it and we try and become one company. And so every company we've acquired for the most part kind of falls into that thesis. And so, yeah, so Dive met them a bunch of years ago and very, very quickly, I, th I think within five months of kind of starting the discussion with the Australian government, we inked what's called the co-development project, which means that for every dollar the Australian government puts in, we put a dollar of our own money. So it's sort of an equal risk equation. And we've been sprinting ever since. And the results have been absolutely exceptional to see. The support from the Australian Navy has been everything you would want in a government partnership. We are absolutely pumped on where that's going to go over the next couple of years. Is that co-development model atypical from how you would otherwise do it? It's atypical to Andrew. It's atypical to government for the most part. I mean, there's definitely examples of it. I think we're a big believer in sort of equalizing the risk equation for both government and industry. I think in traditional defense contracts, all of the risk is borne by the government payer, right? Like I mentioned, the government is paying for the R&D, they're paying for the facilities, they're paying for the overhead, they're paying for everything. 
which by the way makes sense why they want to contract with primes because it mitigates their risk if they're putting all the money forward up front there's some of that yeah absolutely and so yeah in traditional acquisitions the defense company it's very hard to lose money in a traditional acquisition process we're trying to change that equation dramatically and we're saying well let's either equalize the risk or in many cases let us and or will take on all of the risk and we'll come back to you and we think we have something that is mostly done and you can help us sort of get it across the finish line I think a lot of the success of new defense entrants, the success of Anduril, has been changing that risk equation. And what's really funny is everything I just described to you is completely normal in literally every other sector of the economy, where companies take on the risk, and then if they have something good, people buy it, and that company makes a lot of money off of it. That paradigm doesn't exist in defense, and I think it's starting to change. I think the government is starting to do things to change that. And the technical and investor community is reacting really positively to it. Honestly, what percentage do you think you will do of a product before you bring it to them to say, hey, you, do you like this? It is entirely dependent on the class of technology. Yeah. Because that's a scary proposition. Oh, yeah. It's a crazy calculus that you have to do or else you end up losing all your money pretty quickly. I would say for smaller things where let's say you could get to 80% good for sort of mid eight figures, maybe we take on a lot of that and you kind of go to the government. And what's really important is like, it's actually important to not be super complete where you can't change it because right. there are really important requirements that the government will have that you have to consider and build with them. And you can't avoid that in the defense world, but there's definitely some tech where you know, let's say to get to a final product, it costs you a billion dollars. It's a lot of money. You probably can't go and raise all of that money to go and do it. And so what you actually have to end up doing is saying, okay, I still want to put my own money against this. And so what are the subsystems or key pieces of the technology stack that I can forward invest on such that when I do go to the government, we are far ahead of everyone else in our thinking, conceptualization, and productization. But knowing that getting through the full swing is going to take a lot of years and a lot of government money and a lot of government support. You pretty much never avoid that in the defense world, you know, for the most part, nor really can you set up your company to not participate within that world. But what you can do is sort of knock it at the edges to approach what might be a more traditional process in a non-traditional way. Does Anduril have a perspective on if wars will be kinetic in the future? I'll give you kind of a broader answer. So the answer is yes. Kinetic warfare will always be a thing. And I think anybody that thinks otherwise doesn't really know how wars are fought. I think non-kinetic approaches are becoming increasingly important in both sort of competition and conflict. Non-kinetic and kinetic positioning and the publicity of that positioning is incredibly important for community in the defense world. Like the purpose is deterrence, right? At the end of the day, like we don't want to fight wars. And so a lot of kinetic and non-kinetic is positioning towards our deterrent capability. And just to be clear, kinetic is like guns and bombs. Non-kinetic is like cyber attacks. Yeah. Or electronic warfare, like we're seeing in Ukraine. You know, I think our position as a company is that increasingly the deterrent capability and sort of, God forbid, the conflict capability will rely more on unmanned systems, autonomous systems. There's a, a phrase in the defense community called mass. So literally just, can I have more things in the environment than the thing I'm trying to deter or conflict with? And we believe that mass and autonomy and non-kinetic and kinetic if you actually break it down to sort of first principles technology thinking, it implies high, high levels of complex software development that is sort of fundamental to why we started the company in the first place. There was kind of a lot of things, so maybe we can go a little bit further and unpack that. But sort of the reality is that if you want to make the type of kit that deters conflict, you really can't do it from the perspective of, you know, I'm going to make amazing hardware. You have to do it from the perspective of 
I'm going to build amazing software and then I'm going to wrap amazing hardware around it. And that conceptual change is something that I think we do quite well. And I think is something that the traditional defense players are struggling to keep up with. And is that because it's easier for the government to procure hardware than it is to procure software in the ways that they know? It's a yes and. So yes, it is easier for the government to procure hardware. I think there's a lot of things being done to make it easier to procure software. I would actually go further. I would say the talent base that you would want to recruit and retain to build those systems in the first place is traditionally not the talent base that the bigger defense companies would have access to. And so, you know, there's a reason when you walk into an Android facility, you know, it's not like fully sort of Googleized or Facebookized, right? It's not to that degree, but... It feels like a tech company. It feels like a tech company stylistically. And, you know, some of the perks and benefits reflect that as well, because we know we have to recruit the best software talent in the world. And we know that that software talent is going to certain types of companies and you have to create an environment to foster that type of talent. And we've been pretty good at that. We focus as an executive team, I mean, a a comical amount of time on sort of recruiting both hardware and software, knowing that sort of this different level of talent and getting into sort of the world-class range in a lot of these types of hardware and software disciplines is ultimately what will set us apart. Why do you say comical amount of time? Can you define that? I probably personally spend at least a third of my week engaging in recruiting activities. And that's a lot. I think if you look at leadership teams at a lot of other companies, you probably don't see that type of engagement. Recruiting also to me, I'm just like personally passionate about it. I think it's sort of the lifeblood of tech companies and is underappreciated in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, like all this stuff is super important. And at the executive level at Anduril, we're, we're really focused on it. Do you think Anduril does anything, you or Anduril does anything unique or thinks about recruiting in a unique way? Feel free to make that as specific as you want, very tactical or kind of broad themes. I think it's more like we understand what the recruiting pipeline looks like at every level. How do you find people in the first place? What types of backgrounds work and don't? Do you have qualitative and quantitative information that tells you that you know, as folks are moving through the process, Do you understand your interviewing process and do you trust it? I think that's something that a lot of companies, both tech and non-tech miss, is those interviewers, you're trying to elicit actual information to understand if this person is going to perform at your company. And I would say when, when you sort of dip in and understand different recruiting processes, there's not enough focus on quality of interviewing and then closing and onboarding. Are you losing candidates at the very end where you spent a tremendous amount of time and resources getting to that decision and then them rejecting an offer, right? That's heartbreaking. And do you understand the reasons why those rejections or exceptions are coming? And so it's not any one thing, but I think that our focus on understanding throughout that entire pipeline, perhaps that entire pipeline understanding is unique. I think there's other companies that do it. My formative years were at Palantir. I think they do this really, really well. If you look at the talent and the recruiting there, it's something that we will never back off of and we will never not pour resources into bettering it, understanding it and doing better at it. If you could take a resume and strip everything away and the only things that you could see are a set of characteristics or qualities in a person, we've talked about one of them. And I think maybe self-awareness, we could put it more broadly, would probably be in this list. Are there any others that are, you're like, you know, if they don't have this, they're going to struggle. And if they have all these things, like I've seen very few people fail with these qualities. I think it's a couple things. So a history of performance against expectations. And I think that generally there's two good indicators of that. Sort of where a person started and where they end up is really, really important. And this is like, you can't judge a book by its cover type of a thing. So if you have someone who went to an Ivy and went to a major consulting company and was successful, you know, in a way that's kind of like all kind of charted out for them. They're just kind of walking the path in front of them. If you had someone that fought their way into undergrad, got into 
you know, a strong graduate program, fought their way through their first set of career hops, were successful. That's really interesting. The name of this podcast is Grit, right? And so for me, one of the leading indicators on a resume or what are the signs of grit? So I think performance against what you would otherwise expect is a leading indicator of grit. That's one. The other is understanding how companies value employees and how that's reflected on a resume. So in the defense world, people rise up really quick if they're successful. And generally speaking, these companies are quite large. And so there's you know, a certain number of years expected at different positions. And so your performance against expectations there uh, would be, do you rise through these positions faster than one would otherwise expect you to rise up within that structure? That's a really good indicator of great success. And then maybe the last one is key indicators of actual outcomes that were achieved. So I look a lot for this sort of like linchpin characteristic. So not that they were a part of a team that did something, but were they leading that team? Were they driving strategy on it? Was it their name on the line? You know, and was that company looking to them for the success or failure? You get a lot of people that try and hide in their resume behind the success of the entity around them. And looking for that linchpin characteristic ends up being pretty important as well. Yeah, great list. What's something that a lot of people think about you that you disagree with? Well, you kind of flagged this earlier in the conversation. You know, I, I tend to be pretty even keeled. And so I think a common mistake is like, I don't care. Actually, I care deeply. And hopefully my mom would say I'm one of the more empathetic people that she knows. I just use that empathy in a different way than most people do. I care about solving the problem. I don't care about dwelling on what we can't fix. Um, And so a lot of times that's misinterpreted as I don't care. I actually do. I deeply care. And the reason why I move so fast to, okay, what can we actually solve is because I care. And You know, I think the people that know me truly have seen this over and over and over again, and they get it. But certainly from the outside, that can be misinterpreted as abrasive or dismissive. And, you know, I've done a lot over my career to try and improve that, to make sure that I don't ever appear abrasive or dismissive. That's a horrible thing as a leader to to sort of reflect. But yeah, every once in a while, it's certainly a thing that happens, which I understand. How many deals do you have to do in a year to hit? the company's revenue goal? So defense is kind of weird. You have a handful of kind of these mega things that make or break your year. And then you have a lot of smaller things that are accretive to those larger things, either creating new technology or developing past performance against the thing you're trying to go after, or it's a stepping stone to a larger thing, maybe next year and the following year. But yeah, you'd be shocked. I would say in 2023, less than 10 deals will make or break Anduril's year. And then there's probably a couple of hundred at the tail that all have a strategy and a thesis behind it. And all hopefully, right, will accumulate to whatever that list of 10 is in 2024 and 2025. But yeah, defense is weird in that way. It's really, really spiky. It doesn't look like your traditional kind of SaaS businesses and things like that. And How long are those 10-ish make or break deals percolating for? Like how long are those on the radar? For the most part, years. And so you have to be able to kind of look at your long-term targets while you're executing in year. It's actually a really challenging thing. It's hard to do in your brain at the same time. I I literally actually end up segregating my actual calendar into short-term and long-term thinking because it's almost impossible to do in the same sequence. But in defense, you have to do both because the things you're doing this year, the budget is being written always three years out. So you have to be three years ahead of everything and trying to inform, okay, it's 2023. What am I talking to my customers about that I sort of want to start to shape in literally 2026? And what are the sets of deals I'm doing in 2023, 24, 25 that will impact that 26 outcome? It is a crazy world to live in, you know, sort of to the the prior part of the conversation, you literally have to structure your company around that type of sort of short-term, long-term dynamic. 
Can you talk about how do you do your calendar? Can you get more specific on that? Oh, man. Now you're going to crack open a part of my brain that not a lot of people see. So first off, I have a hilariously colorful calendar. And all of the colors mean something <laughs> to me, at least. Whether they're must-go-do, whether they are, I don't have to go, but I want to know it exists, whether I can sort of shift things around. And then each month and then each quarter is sort of shaped around these like long-term and, and short-term things. So short-term sort of, okay, in quarter, are we focused on the right deals, opportunities, and are we executing on the work in such a way that it's accretive to whatever that next growth objective is? And there's sort of a series of touches that occur throughout the month and quarter and that sort of that in-year work. And then less frequently, but still importantly, quarter over quarter, are these things we're doing within our various product lines, are they actually materializing into real strategy and real growth objectives for the large programs that we're trying to access in you know, future years? And you have to be super diligent about sort of fighting and shaping your own personal calendar in that way, or else you end up sort of losing the thread on a lot of these things pretty quickly. You have an EA? I do, yes. I think I would die without her. Okay. <laughs> the only reason I ask is because you strike me as a bit of a control freak in this regard around your time. <laughs> and so I'm a little surprised that you're willing to get assistance there. Well, to the point of things I can control and not control in my life, I declared bankruptcy on my calendar a long time ago. So if that's in the I can't control it bucket. And I have a very trusted human that helps me on that front. What's a bad deal for Andrew? It's sort of a funny question because I, I always joke around the office, like, what kind of deals should we do? And I always say, well, we should probably do good deals and not bad deals. <laughs> it's like the joke we kind of always make. So, so what does that mean? So basically, the economics of defense are such that you like almost can only be profitable at scale. So think nine figure a year plus type of contracts. Can you explain why? Particularly in the robotics pieces. It's extremely hard to hit the economies of scale that you need to hit in your supply chains and in manufacturing production in order to even understand your cost of goods sold until you reach really some key inflection points. And so knowing that a bad deal is one that we literally believe will never get us or net us any kind of scaled up operation isn't accretive to maybe another deal we have in the pipeline that will do the same, or lastly, doesn't allow us to build a technology that's important to getting something at scale. And so I think like early on in companies, you always end up doing deals that in hindsight, you're like, oh man, maybe I wouldn't have done that with like the benefit of perspective. And you know, maybe we have a couple of those that we deal with and we still do well at, right? Like you still have to execute and perform. But a bad deal for us, yeah, it basically doesn't hit one of those three criteria. It doesn't scale, it's not accretive to scale, and it's not allowing us technologies that will will help us scale. We try and avoid those things like the plague. Well, dude, I appreciate you doing this. I really do. I wrap all these things in basically the same way. The first is, are you hiring? If so, are there any key roles that you want to shout out? How do you get a hold of you, et cetera? Sure. We are hiring like crazy across all roles, software, hardware, internal operations, you name it, manufacturing, anderl.com. Hit it up. It'll list literally every single role we have open and there's too many to name. But yeah, please, like if you have an interest in national security, whether you already work within the community and you're interested in our company and how we pursue the work that we do, or you're outside of the community, but have always been interested in national security or just interested in the crazy things happening in the world right now, reach out to us or apply. Yeah, we're hiring like crazy. Last one, when you hear the word grit, what do you think of or who do you think of? I think of actually a lot of people that I have worked with along the way that once you learn about them and their backgrounds and where they came from, it is absolutely remarkable in terms of their success and, and sort of where they are today. It's inspiring. It's humbling. It affects my work. It affects how I think through how we scale Anduril and how we engage with our customers. Like those people, they're special. Um, and when you meet them, you know it. 
And yeah, I guess that's what grit means to me. Matt Stackman, thank you. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.